0: It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running
1: conservative talk show.
0: He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts.
1: Thank you kindly, sir. Good afternoon. Welcome to you. Great to have you on board with the Tuesday edition of Lifeline for this 23rd of July. Well, trust, has been a good week for you as we're kicking off a, a new program here tonight addressing issues that impact your life and your world. One of the big issues we're going to start with tonight is a look at news, kind of a big deal as Congress is heading off on vacation here shortly, that they've come to a budget agreement, a budget agreement that's going to actually sort of pave the way for peace and tranquility between the two parties well into 2021. And uh, for those folks paying attention, you might take note of the fact that they've managed to come to an agreement that pushes us almost to the end of 2021 and conveniently well past November of 2020's election season. Let's spend a moment, if we can, before we meet our first guest tonight, taking a bit of a walk back to the good old days to uh, sort of refresh your sense of nostalgia. Reduce our $18 trillion in debt because, believe me, we're in a bubble we have artificially low interest rates. Be careful of a bubble, because what you've seen in the past might be small potatoes compared to what happens. So be very, very careful. Yeah, that was President um, just before the election in 2016, citing the fact that at the time we had a 18 trillion dollar debt, heading towards 20, and that the. Low interest rate environment could be problematic. Well, you have to wonder what happened to the good old days, the good old Tea Party days, when we were concerned about deficit spending. Apparently those days are long gone, and that's a bit of history now, as we are currently seated at $22 trillion in debt and the current budget deal. Uh, by the time twenty twenty one arrives, we'll be at twenty four trillion dollars in debt and and ironically ironically, as we look to either side, um, it, it would appear that Democrats have simply written the check and the Republicans have signed it, and you and I will get to fund it. Joining me now with some insights on this current budget agreement is the host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show, heard locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on 860 AM, The Answer. Bob Zadek is a prolific author. He is also an attorney by trade and joins us now to talk about this. And I, I guess that's kind of true. I mean, I used to joke here on the program, Bob, welcome to the show, by the way, that um, the, the Democrats had a, a notorious history of taxing and spending and Republicans borrowed and spent. But at the end of the day, both parties spent alike. But most recently, it seems as if this desire we once had to try and rein in deficit spending and reduce the... The federal debt seems to sort of uh, be a thing of the past. What's happened here?
2: Well, Craig, first of all, thank you for inviting me back on the show. It's always wonderful to be here. And I would just like to correct one little bit of your introduction, if I may. You referred to Congress as um, in reference to a two-party system. That's not the case. When it comes to spending... There is a one-party system, the spend party, and there is absolutely no disagreement. And, Craig, I am reminded when I was a youngster and went to summer camp, the highlight of the summer camp was the entire camp, from the kindergartners through the teens, were divided into two teams in my camp it was the green team and the white team there was no difference in the overall population it was kind of arbitrary and then once we were divided up then if i was on the white team i wore white shorts and a white shirt and i was taught for four days during athletic competition to despise the green team they were the green team they were horrible you didn't talk to them you sat at separate tables Uh, Even though a day before we were buddies, and for four days it was war. It was color war. And then color war ended, and we were back to one big happy camp. Well, in our political life today, we have the blues and the reds, all exactly pretty much the same when it comes to spending, except they feign the fact that they disagree so they can then agree with a budget with a budget compromise a budget agreement even though the result was foregone before they sat down and the only losers are us but any any pretension that we have when it comes to spending a two-party system is just playing along with their game, and I don't, I don't recognize that. Second of all, Craig, you, you welcomed your audience, and you welcomed me, and expressing the hope we're having a good week so far. And then you talked about the budget debt, the budget agreement. Well, no, Craig, I am not having a good week so far. I am having a very bad week so far, but thank you for asking by dint of the budget, quote, agreement.
1: And, you know, I offered tongue-in-cheek, ironically, the ones that will really end up having a bad, not weak, but a bad life are going to be the future generations upon whose backs we are piling all of this indebtedness. And you know what I find interesting, Bob, and maybe you can shed some light on this for our listeners. Uh, There have been times, certainly in America's history, when a matter of spending significantly more than the U.S. Treasury brought in was a matter of survival. I think, for example, of World War II. And it it, it was spend, 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 because we had a common enemy. We needed to, to mount up military supplies and materials. We needed to support our troops. We needed to do everything we needed to do to make sure we won the war. Likewise, we've had moments when it was felt necessary to spend more to try and stave off potential larger economic disasters, be it some of the spending that went on during the Great Depression under the New Deal and FDR, or more recently on the heels of the 2008-2009 economic disaster. What I find disingenuous, what I find difficult to sort of uh, resolve in my own mind is we, we have this constant drumbeat of how healthy our economy is. Wall Street is on a tear. We're now basically 10 and a half years into the longest bull run in history. We're told how fantastic everything is at so many economic points. And yet the one thing that seemingly during good times or bad alike that we can't control is our spending. Why is that?
2: Well, Craig, you, you, you mentioned war and natural disasters and the like. And uh, I must say, you raise a very astute and important point. Uh, when I look at budgetary issues, monetary policy, wh- wh- fiscal policy, what we're talking about now, when I look at that, I don't ever focus on the absolute amount we are spending. Because in times of war... And when survival is at stake, you don't focus on spending. You focus on survival. So what, to put what you have said another way, the issue is never how much you're spending. It is what you are spending it on. And that's the issue. And you, you made an excellent and as you often, almost always do, which is you point to the fact sometimes The amount of spending doesn't matter. It's irrelevant when the alternative is death of a country. Then you don't discuss the amount of spending. So the issue is what money is spent on. Now, what has happened in this past Congress is we are spending more money on defense, for example, than the next six countries uh, below us spend collectively. We have uh, 700 foreign bases. Our nearest competitor has five foreign bases. Are we 1,400 times more at risk in foreign countries than anybody else's? Of course not. So, and we are now, basically, the world is at peace. At peace. And our defense spending is the highest. Because defense spending has a life all its own, not based upon need. And the same way with spending on social welfare benefits and the like, the country has never been individually more prosperous earnings have never been higher the need for wealth transfers has never been lower than it is right now and yet all of that spending goes up why does it go up because by spending money congress gets to buy votes and to make the analogy one your audience can follow you have to your enormous credit a family oriented audience your audience understands better than any other audience family values and just imagine the quality of parenting if we had a parent who was not very good at parenting but bought the love of their children by just showering them with gifts and with material items and every time they were a bad parent they papered it over by giving money to their children so the children would love them Now, whatever feelings the children would have towards their parents, it would not be true love. And the one thing for sure, the parents are creating in their child one who is not going to be a contributing, valuable adult if the adult has learned that love can be bought. Well, Congress has learned that respect or re-election can be bought if they spend enough. So Congress compensates. For the equivalent of bad parenting, that is bad legislation, they compensate for being bad at their job by buying reelection through spending. That is the way they do it. And Congress is just one big re election machine and the spending only means they want to ensure their own re election. To think that our country is getting any benefit whatever, foreign or domestic, from the spending is 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 a false assumption. The only one to benefit by the spending is Congress itself.
1: And you know, it shouldn't be lost on any of us that this budget agreement that is bipartisan in nature pushes out well past the 2020 election so that neither Democrat nor Republican want to face, of course, budget Uh, budget crisis and uh, re-election at the same time. So what have they done? They've said, let's kick this can further down the road. We'll deal with it later. Somebody will eventually address this issue. And, of course, we know that when um, the issue or the conversation turns to addressing it once again, we'll find another excuse to kick the can further down the road. Bob Zadek is with us today. Bob is a nationally syndicated talk show host. His radio program, The Bob Zadek Show, can be heard Sunday mornings here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. That's Sundays at 8 AM. If you check out his website, bobzadek.com, you'll find all kinds of great resources there, a list of the stations that he's heard on. Of course, you can also get podcasts of previous broadcasts and check out a number of his books, including his most recent recent, which, ironically, we don't have really time to dive into the way these two um, conversations or issues sort of of dovetail together, but his most recent book, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product, also has a lot to say about our spending in our country. Bob Zadek, bobzadek.com. We'll take a time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation. When we come back, we'll present this question to Bob. The Tea Party, whatever happened to them as Lifeline continues. 519, you're stuck in traffic. You want to know what's going on? We've got the latest for you right now. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
3: With Senator Greg, because he knows more about it than I do. But um, political process. One of the lessons I learned in Washington is it's almost impossible to get something big and difficult and controversial done without a crisis. Twice we got Congress to to act and they did it before the system collapsed, but it took a crisis.
1: There is a... Former Goldman Sachs CEO, Henry Paulson, name Ring a Bell, uh, essentially saying that you can't get anything done in this country unless there's a real crisis at hand. And maybe that's the problem right now. With all the good news on Wall Street, there is no crisis and therefore no motivation at all in Congress to deal with deficit spending and the federal debt. Once again, we continue our conversation with syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, host of The Bob Zadek Show, heard Sunday mornings here locally in the san francisco bay area and syndicated nationally locally at eight sixty a.m the answer bob whatever happened to the legacy of the tea party uh, there were a number of election cycles where their points were strong forward and they were beginning to at least seemingly become a tour de force within the republican party and within congress and now today it seems that they have altogether disappeared
2: uh, they didn't disappear unfortunately uh, that is The members of the Tea Party are still there. They are just no longer drinking tea. Um, (laughs) The Tea Party, um, but they're all there. They're just been all co-opted by the free haircuts and free meals that you get in Congress. As Jeff Berdner observed, he has just written The Vanishing Congress, that the greatest entitlement program in the entire world is members of the House and Senate. They are the king of all entitlement programs because they get enormous benefits. It's a gosh darn good job, and they don't want to lose it. And they have discovered that the way to make sure they remain entitled is to stay in Congress and to give the people more money. Let them eat cake. But, but to answer your question about the history, uh, they peaked out, they being the Tea Party, uh, in about 2011 when, uh, when they enacted, they uh, were elected in 2010 as a reaction to Obama's uh, election in 2008 and Obama spending a trillion dollars on the failed tar program. Nobody knew it was a failure then, but it was a lot of money. So the Tea Party got elected, and the Republicans took control of Congress. And they enacted, as the crown jewel of the Tea Party movement, and it was that, the Budget Control Act, which uh, in effect limited discretionary spending by statute. So they locked themselves in. They locked congress in to not being able to increase discretionary spending and you know what craig it worked and the budget deficit went down and went down and went down until the republicans realized you know this isn't all that cool we can't spend so much money anymore and gradually they got co-opted and with this recent quote, agreement between the blue and the reds in Congress, they eviscerated all remnants of the Budget Control Act so that now they can spend into oblivion. That's what happened to the Tea Party. And Craig, uh, once again, just to help your audience alleviate their worry, you, co- you suggested they should worry about their grandchildren, who will be saddled with all of our debt. Craig, I don't think you have to worry. Of course, the elected officials of our grandchildren will also know how to kick the can down the road. So maybe the grandchildren of the grandchildren will get no chair when the music stops. So I think our grandchildren's elected officials will take as good a care of them as our elected officials are taking care of us. And who knows what generation is going to end up drinking the Kool-Aid. We don't know yet.
1: But, but I've got to wonder, two questions in light of that, your observation there, Bob. One is... We understand that there are ways in which circumstances can be manipulated, crises can be be delayed. I mean, even the average family of four that uh, has a spending problem, meaning they want more goodies than they're capable of, of actually paying for have learned the joys and wonders of revolving credit cards, but at some point, as we know, you know the the piper wants to be paid at some point, even as you're using revolving credit, the bank says, "Look, you better put up, you better at least make some minimum payments, we want some interest here, and so eventually the roosters come home to roost. It, from a practical standpoint, and, and and you know, I guess if we had had this conversation ten years ago, we would have thought, gee, if we're not careful, this deficit could hit ten billion dollars, well, or ten trillion. Now here we are at twenty-two trillion. Who would have thought it? Uh, doesn't there, at some point, become a crossover where GDP can simply not support the the amount of indebtedness and the interest that we have to pay on this?
2: Absolutely, absolutely, but there are so many different dynamics at work and it is, as you and I both know, so complicated because right now America is the economy that, or the American dollar is the reserve currency that keeps the world somewhat economically stable. Therefore everybody on earth has a stake in our country, not imploding, and therefore, they might find it necessary, they being the rest of the world, to somehow keep on buying our bonds, which means lending us money, so we don't fail, because if we fail, the planet fails. And it's hard to say when the line is finally crossed that external factors will bring it all down. It's horrible to think about, but right now it is somewhat impossible to predict when that's going to happen the one thing you can predict the one thing you can predict is it will happen and the problem is there's nothing there's no reason for hope in our congress because congress does not as i said it is so preoccupied with its own self-interest and getting reelected and Everybody in Congress now and everybody who is going to be running for office in the near future knows they will not be there when the end comes. Therefore, you use the phrase kicking the can down the road. In the short term, and we're still in the short term, that's a winning policy if your only goal is... Is to get reelected.
1: Do you agree then with the? Do you agree, Bob, with former um, Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson's observation that no crisis equates no action in Congress?
2: Oh, of course that's true. And by the way, but I also disagree with the corollary: a crisis also creates inaction in Congress. When we had when we had the alleged crisis with the uh, Great Recession. Congress didn't do anything very effective. They, the, uh, Obama proposed legislation, and Congress rubber stamped it. Remember, John McCain left the campaign trail to go in and proudly vote for TARP. So Congress, and therefore, it was Obama who spent all the money, not Congress. Congress doesn't even respond to a crisis they respond to a crisis by delegating the the fixing of the crisis to either the executive which means the bureaucracy or to the courts they delegate here you deal with it and we'll give you a bunch of money that way they get reelected and others take the hit so congress doesn't even act during a crisis at least not effectively
1: So it seems as if at the end of the day, they've really become experts at at least two things, passing the buck, as you just suggested, and kicking the can down the road. Is And a final question for you tonight, Robert, is any dialogue, and we used to have these conversations back in the good old days, is any dialogue regarding a so-called balanced budget amendment, is that DOA at this point?
2: The trouble with the balanced budget amendment is, though, since Congress is not going to cut back on spending, the only way to balance the budget is increasing taxes. And is that what you want? Is that what you and I want? Well, of course not. So balanced budget means huge tax increases, because it sure doesn't mean cutting back in spending. And that's the problem with a balanced budget budget amendment. What you have to have, for the good old days, remember sequester, Craig, when, when we couldn't agree, Congress couldn't agree on, on solving the budgetary problems, that in order to avoid a government shutdown, they agreed to stop all spending and let's agree on on keeping the government open the sequestra which actually reduced the deficit and reduced spending it was profoundly effective till they till the dems and the republicans said we can't stand this anymore let's get rid of it we can't spend and even though it was working perfectly they got rid of it So if they get rid of the sequestra and get rid of the Budget Control Act, the only solution is never vote for a Democrat or Republican. Pick a third party and vote for them, because that's the only hope, is to show both major parties we reject their cynicism and we reject their selfishness.
1: And sadly, as we've seen demonstrated here today, and close observers, I think, will agree, um, the the celebratory uh, tone being struck by both the administration, Republican leadership, Mitch McConnell, Democrat leadership in Nancy Pelosi, just essentially means that we've pushed the problem down the road at least another year and a half, two years. And uh, in the process, the Democrats wrote the check, the Republicans signed it, and you and me, we get to pay for it. Bob Zadek, host of the nationally syndicated Bob Zadek Show. We're going to have Bob back on to talk about his new book, The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product. You want one insight? 1960, just a little bit over 50 years ago. Heading towards 60 years ago. Time flies. 1960, the cost of an education at Princeton University per year, $2,500 twenty five hundred dollars. And today it's fifty two thousand. You could have walked away with a nice Princeton education four years ten grand. Now that nice same Princeton education four years two hundred plus grand. The Bubble, How Higher Ed Became America's Most Overrated Product, available now through Amazon. And, of course, you can also order it at BobZadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K.com. Lots of great information, podcast resources, too, at BobZadek.com. Check out the website. Check out his program, Sunday mornings at 8 a.m. on our sister station, 860 a.m., The Answer. Bob, is always, an education to have you join us. Thanks again for the time. 5.36, they tell me, time for a look at traffic. So let's see what traffic has to tell us about your ride home.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: The story made global headlines last June were that 17-year-old Dutch rape victim who suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and anorexia had succeeded in taking her own life. Noah Pottevin had stopped eating and drinking. This is after she had sought outright Death via euthanasia, which he initially had been requesting, and eventually simply succumbed to starvation. This story, I think, is significant because it demonstrates a cultural attitude, a growing cultural attitude, that puts a lot of emphasis on suffering and the elimination of suffering at any cost. I think if we look, um, At the core definition of the word um, humane, to do something humanely, we talk about treating animals humanely, the definition being that of tenderness, compassion, sympathy for both people and animals, especially those suffering or distressed, and to act in a manner that causes the least harm to people or animals. But sadly, we've taken it to the next level where we say, you know, that's all relative now. What we need to do is we need to eliminate suffering at any cost, even if it means eliminating the sufferer. Joining me now with some more insights on this is Senior Fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. His blog, Human Exceptionalism, by the way, is hosted by National Review Online. You can check it out at nationalreview.com. He has been named one of the nation's top expert thinkers in bioengineering and bioethics, And Wes Smith, great to have you back on the program.
3: Hey, Craig, how are you? We've been doing this for many years.
1: We have indeed, brother, and I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us today about this important topic because, you know, on the surface, you look at the story of Noah and you think, what a tragedy. Here she was gang raped in a most brutal fashion as a young girl and consequently on the heels of this event, suffered from severe degrees of post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, anxiety, very logical having gone through an experience like this, where the logic becomes disconnected is rather than the top priority being to find her some sense of relief from her suffering through a medication perhaps, certainly through counseling, things of this sort that would be able to address what was going on in her heart in response to this terrible Tragedy. Instead, it became a quest for her to simply end the suffering by ending her own life. And the mechanisms in there that said, no, wait a minute, you can overcome this. The mechanisms in the Dutch society were simply not there, largely because of what seems to be this slow parade towards, what can we call it, but a culture of death.
3: Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And the interesting thing about this case is uh, this poor girl uh, had actually written a best-selling book about her travails, so she obviously had a great deal of life force behind her to actually have accomplished something like that. And before she decided to commit suicide by self-starvation, which I want to get into, it's in the euthanasia movement, they call that B S E D, Voluntary Stop Eating and Drinking, and, and I'll get into that in a second. But before she did that, she asked uh, um, for electroshock therapy, which can sometimes alleviate uh, depression uh, because it's it's become a uh, legitimate part of psychiatric care. And she was refused, Craig. They said, you're too young for this, and they wouldn't give it to her. Yet somehow, when she was refused treatment, she was allowed, and I would say abetted because there's no question in my mind, that some doctors must have palliated the suffering caused by self-starvation and dehydration, made it so she could uh, uh, not experience the symptoms. And sometimes, by the way, and I don't know if this happened, but I'm hoping that we'll find out there is an investigation. Sometimes doctors in cases like this, when they won't lethally inject, will put somebody into an artificial coma and keep them in that artificial coma until they die two weeks later of dehydration it's, it's sometimes called terminal sedation and it would not shock me in the least if that's what happened in this case I don't know whether that is but I, I I'm very confident that there was some medical abetting of this by making it so she would not uh, quit self-starving because it was uh, too uncomfortable to do so
1: Wow I want to have you comment on my my observation regarding the, 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 the humane side of all of this. You know, we we talk a lot, certainly in the Western culture and society, about uh, treating animals humanely. We want to make sure that they're not abused. We look after their comfort. Um, if an animal reaches the point where uh, they are at the end of life, we have them put down because we want to treat them humanely. So there's that sense of, of tenderness and compassion and sympathy, and yet there seems to be a disconnect here where we have become so focused on treating, in this case, people humanely and wanting to alleviate suffering that we've now been willing to go as far as to simply eliminate the sufferer as That's the correct. means of, I guess, what, erasing some of our sense of guilt that we feel as if we can't, can't do, we can't wave a magic wand to make them healthy or whole again. So if we can't eliminate the suffering that way, let's just uh, eliminate the sufferer.
3: Well, you know, there's an interesting dichotomy here. If you go back 150 years, people did die in agony. If you got bone cancer 150 years ago, you probably died in agony. If you had a burst appendix 150 years ago, you probably died in agony. And guess what? Nobody was talking about euthanasia. Nobody was talking about, quote, death with dignity. Uh, it just wasn't part of the conversation. So what has happened is that we have become so successful in terms of our treatment of people, we have become so adept at uh, al- alleviating suffering, mitigating, as, as and this is a good thing, obviously, mitigating the discomforts of disease or injury, that I, it seems to me we've come to a place where we expect there to be no difficulty whatsoever. And also, I'm afraid there's something going on here, Craig, that has to do with putting ourselves out of our family's misery, if you will. Look at um, uh, uh, the case of Brittany Maynard. Brittany Maynard, you may recall, was the California woman, young woman, uh, got brain cancer. She moved to Oregon so she could have assisted suicide, never once tried uh, to have hospice care, which can alleviate The uh, significantly the suffering caused by brain cancer when uh, some expert, uh, Dr. Ira Byock, just as an example, one of the country's most adept experts at hospice care, went on Good Morning America to say, wait a second, it's not hopeless. People with brain cancer who are dying do not have to die in unalleviated suffering. He was yelled at. How dare you say that uh, about uh, Brittany Maynard? And he wasn't talking about her specifically, but he was talking in general yet what she wrote in her public advocacy for euthanasia or for assisted suicide was that number one she wanted to commit suicide because she was worried about suffering which we can all understand but it seems, and she said and then she accepted a worst case scenario of what would happen to her uh... which i suggest might have been planted in her in her head if you will by people who wanted her to want assisted suicide but secondly she said, I don't want my family to remember me badly uh, of, of going through the decline. Are we going to become a society that decides that our job and our obligation to our family so that they don't have to experience the emotional difficulty of watching loved ones die is suicide? Now, I know you've had deaths in your family. My mother died uh, three years ago of Alzheimer's in my home. My wife and I brought her under my home for the last five months of her life. That was not an easy experience, but so what? My mother didn't have a duty to die and get out of the way to, in order to spare me uh, the difficulty that was associated, and I must say the great honor associated with caring for her at, at, her, at her end. So we have to be very careful here.
1: Well, and you and, touch on, I think, Wes, the very slippery slope that slippery slope between the, the sort of altruistic notion that we're trying to end a person's life who is facing a terminal illness and potential pain and so forth, that we want to eliminate their suffering. And that sounds like a very laudable kind thing to do. But how quickly that downward spiral where suddenly the agenda begins to shift, as you're suggesting, that the, the real priority here is not so much about eliminating the suffering of our loved one as much as it is Eliminating our own suffering, and you know, in more harsher terms, it's you know she's lived a good life. X number of years is fine, and we sort of justify in our own mind how that at some point, uh, mother slipping away or father being out of the picture, whatever, is is really for their own benefit. When, what we really mean to say is that it's for our own benefit because we just want to go, just don't want to go through the discomfort of of the, the the pain and the loss of watching the decline.
3: And then add in the consequence of uh, medical uh, costs and cost control. Uh, What could be a cheaper, quote, treatment, close quote, than killing somebody? Mm -hmm. It costs perhaps $1,000 for an assisted suicide. It might cost $100,000 for the kind of care that hospice can provide or other services can provide so that the person doesn't want assisted suicide. And take a look at the normalization of suicide. It's becoming almost an expectation. You've had in the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times, and other newspapers these incredible laudatory stories of suicide parties where people uh hold a going-away party, their friends and loved ones come, and at the end of it they commit suicide. Now think about that think about if you, if your listeners, and and of course you live in California, which I used to, but don't anymore, but you have legalized assisted suicide. Any one of your audience members over there in Fremont, Northern California, which I know very well, I used to live there lived there in that area for 25 years. Any one of your listeners could get a call from Sister Susie, let's say. Sister Sue says, you know, Grandma's got cancer. She's expected to uh, expire within six months, but she's decided it's next Tuesday. She's got the pill. She wants you to come and be with her when she kills herself, and uh, along with the rest of the family. What do you do? If you say yes, you're validating Grandma's worst fears about herself, that she might be a burden, that she might not be as lovable anymore if she goes through that decline. That, uh, you know, the money cost used to care for her properly could be better used for little Timmy going to college, this kind of thing. Uh, but if you say no, and no one in that circumstance should ever just say no, they should say, in my opinion, Grandma, I can't do that, but here's what I can do, right? You never abandon anybody. But if you say no, then Sister Sue says, Well, who are you to force your Christianity on me, buddy? You're out of the family. And don't think that won't happen. Do you remember the uh, the Klooster case? And it was uh, from Castro Valley. Remember uh, Gerald Klooster? Oh, yes. From Castro Valley? And he was the doctor, the Kaiser doctor, who had Alzheimer's disease. And his uh, his wife took him to Cabo- Jack Orkin when Jack Orkin was doing the assisted suicides was going to take him to Michigan for an assisted suicide and his son Chip found out about it and actually took his father uh, when his father and mother were in Florida for a last visit with good friends before flying to Michigan. Chip flew down there, got his father to come home with him to save his life. Do you remember that? Ha ha! This was in the 1990s where Chip saved his father from Jack of Orkian. And I, I became the um, uh, the spokesman for Chip in California at, at that time. And eventually the case was resolved, and, and the father was uh, never assisted in suicide and died a natural death. Did you know, uh, Chip reached me, talked to me about a year and a half ago, he is completely estranged from his family. He lost his love of his mother and his brothers and sisters because he kept his father from being put into a carbon monoxide machine by Jack Kevorkian. So this kind of thing can happen. This is the kind of conundrum and, and awful situations that this whole assisted suicide movement calls causes. And any one of your listeners could experience it, and they should be thinking right now, what would I do if that call ever came?
1: well and and sadly in the in the Kluster case a, a, as in others we've seen some sense where at least some degree of support from the family and that that sense of of you know coming together, we want to be supportive of this. Becomes problematic. Then you've got others where things are just absolutely torn apart, like in the case of Terry Schiavo, where one side is saying, "Hey, wait a minute, we can't be doing this." And, and the husband, in this case, of course, was was eager to uh, uh, to terminate her life, and and it's it's sad because it's a series of mixed messages. Where at the end of the day. We sort of discount the notion that human life has unique value and and therefore is to be protected, and we move into what becomes... I guess this tipping point where we see more and more sense of of acceptance that this becomes sort of the, the socially appropriate thing to do, whether, as you say, gee, instead of the money to keep grandma alive for another year, that could go to support, you know, education in, in, in the family and, and uh, uh, leave a nice inheritance, whatever the case might be. And, and sadly, we sort of justify in our own minds the reason why this ought to, quote unquote, be okay and then add
3: another utilitarian aspect to this eventually you get to the place where you think well if these people are going to die anyway shouldn't we have use of their organs so you will see now you do see now in belgium and netherlands where the society generally has accepted euthanasia not only are are terminally ill people brought in but actually mentally ill people who suffer a lot more than dying people in many cases look at this woman with anorexia that we discussed where people are brought into hospitals who are not otherwise dying. They are euthanized if they have a mental illness because of the mental illness they've asked to die, or let's say a neuromuscular disability. They're then wheeled into, their bodies are wheeled into a surgical suite and their organs are harvested. This has been written up in in medical journals. Hey, this is a good source of organs. Can you think of anything more frightening and more, more uh, Abandoning, than telling someone who is having a terrible time getting through the night because of existential anguish that their deaths have greater value than their lives. And imagine the the danger uh, of making a society think that they get a benefit from people killing themselves or being euthanized. Canada is also permitting organ harvesting with euthanasia, not mentally ill people yet. But that's going to happen, too, because once you go down this road, Once you say that somebody is a member of a killable caste, C-A-S-T-E, then they become an exploitable caste. Then they become somebody we can look upon as a source of benefit for ourselves or our loved ones. It can become very, very frightening and can lead to some very dark places. And the people who are taking the organs of these people who are being killed think they're enlightened. It's just stunning to me.
1: And, and that I think is, the, is perhaps the most egregious side of all of this like in the K case where you know I, I, I wasn't the wife the one who was kind of initiating contact with uh, Kevorkian and trying to get things set up and so that, that created this big rift within the family the son wants to spare the father's life and the mother's you know essentially helping to to facilitate uh, th- this man's uh, uh, suicide and and in the process we always point to all of the altruistic ideas as to why this is a good thing, whether it ends in in releasing a person from suffering or we allow the harvesting of organs that allow other people to live. Um, it, it, it's almost this sense here where we have completely... from a a moral relativism uh, relativism standpoint, flips things on its head. And I've always thought, and we've had this conversation in the past, um, Wes, even the notion of suggesting that, well, this is really about the matter of death with dignity. And I always thought to myself, since when did we redefine death, a natural part of the life cycle, as something that's not dignified?
3: Exactly. Exactly. So when my mother died naturally in my home, uh, in uh, a, with, me, with me and my wife uh, there, that wasn't dignified when my father died in a veterans hospital in Los Angeles, Wadsworth uh, uh, in hospice care from cancer that he got because he was an atomic veteran and served his country uh, uh, that wasn't death with dignity I resent that and I reject it completely
1: uh, Closing comment if you would uh, you touched on this we're at a stage now in America, we're almost 20 percent of our country um, has right now legalized euthanasia. My, my concern is uh, if we have 20 percent of the states that have already passed laws in favor of this, How rapidly will the march be, and when will we reach the tipping point where maybe the Supreme Court is asked to come in and make a decision whether or not uh, one has a – you know, we we have certainly a constitutionally protected right to liberty, life and liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Are we someday going to see the Supreme Court have to decide whether or not we add to that the pursuit of life, liberty, happiness, or death?
3: Well, uh, that's already been asked. In 1997, there were two cases in front of the United States Supreme Court, uh, Vaclav v. Quill and Washington v. Glucksberg. Uh, I filed an amicus brief in that case on behalf of uh, what was then called the International Anti-Euthanasia Task Force. Uh, and nine to zero, the Supreme Court ruled that there is not a constitutional right to assisted suicide. But you're quite right. They want to come back. When, let's say, 20 or 25 states. Right now, it's eight states. It is 20% of the population because of California. But it's, but it's eight states. And that's uh, after 1994, when Oregon first passed it. I was told, we were told that this is inevitable, it'll sweep within 10 years across the country. It hasn't. The American people have serious and significant doubts about this. And so they, uh, the assisted suicide advocates pretend it's just this little limited thing for when nothing else can be done to eliminate suffering, which, of course, the laws don't require. They just, that's the selling point. And they also fear about the pain of death and people dying in agony, which can happen, but not if you have good, proper, adequate medical treatment. The chances of that happening are not high, uh, but... What really is going on is people are committing assisted suicide. The studies from in this country and around the world demonstrate they're worried about losing dignity. Well, that's a problem, of course, but the way you handle that is to, to love people, not to abandon them to death. That's something that needs to be addressed and can be addressed and should be addressed. But we, we don't have to just say, oh, you're right, you don't have dignity. Another reason people ask for assisted suicide is they're worried about losing the ability to engage in enjoyable activities. Of course that's a concern. People, uh, but people also can learn to adjust that. I was a hospice volunteer. I have had one patient who died of Lou Gehrig's disease. He lived in your neck of the woods. And he told me that he wanted to go to Kevorkian. This was in the 90s. Uh, for suicide. And then he said, I'm so glad I wasn't able to do that because and this these were his words. I came out of the darkness and into the light. I came out of the darkness and into the light. I came out of the fog and I'm so glad to be alive. And he, hospice is about living. Assisted suicide is about dying. Well, and, you know, the interesting
1: thing is that we we talk about this notion of, of, uh, you know, death with dignity and the process of trying to find or retain or capture or preserve our dignity. We're losing our very souls. Wes, I appreciate the time, brother. We're out of time uh, in this segment. But I want to direct listeners, if you want to get more information, um, you can read the blog post. Human Exceptionalism, which is hosted by National Review Online by Wes Smith, senior fellow at the Discovery Institute Center on Human Exceptionalism. Wes Smith, thanks for the time. We're at 602. Let's get caught up in some traffic right now.